Welcome back to The Mentors. This is Vadim. And Sergey And Pumpkin. And Pumpkin just ran on the bed because we are apparently recording on my bed. But hey, guess hey. what? You didn't need to know that. You Why did I just tell you that? It's TMI. Man. Well, they know. They do. Um, we record wherever we have to, but uh, today is going to be a continuation of last week's episode about Jillian Morris, the founder and CEO of Hitlist. She had an incredible story about how she... Pumpkin. Pumpkin, seriously, you're growling right now. Pumpkin, what do you want? You want attention? I want attention. Oh. Uh, oh. Pause. We're giving Pumpkin her pillow. This takes priority over recording. She While had- we're making a ton of people wait just for pumps. <laughs> Might edit it out. She had an incredible story about how she essentially had an idea for a travel app that she bootstrapped in the beginning and then figured out how to fund from there and really just figured out as she went along. And in this episode, we're going to learn a little bit about what that grueling fundraising experience was and how she actually grew the company to what it is today. Here's the rest of our conversation. And I talked to over 100 before I got my first yes which was, that's just an incredible amount of time, if you're imagining. And that's at least a half hour phone call, 45 minutes sit down with each of these people. It was unbelievably disheartening to hear no over and over again. At a certain point, certainly for the beginning meetings, it was also just such a learning experience that it was okay. But yeah, after a certain point, it became incredibly frustrating. I didn't build my target list of investors from the very beginning, I was definitely just taking any meeting with anyone who anyone suggested was potentially an investor. Mm -hmm. And I realized that there are a lot of talkers out there. There are a lot of people who are interested in just fishing for information. There's no chance they're actually going to invest. There are a lot of people at big seed funds who say they go in early, but they're definitely not going to go in as early a stage as I was. Even seed stage funds are generally people who come in after you've raised 500k in friends and family or angel investor money before. It's just a totally different stage. I didn't understand that. So I talked to a lot of seed stage funds, and they always have some associate who's happy to talk to you. And it's a total waste of time. Mm. My first investor was actually was a friend who was a a lawyer who I'd met when I was an opera singer in Paris, (laughs) which was a whole different chapter of my life when I was 18, 19. And he and I had stayed friends. And I, at one point, was in London trying to pitch some investors. And I was sleeping on his couch. And he said, oh, well, I'll go in for 15K. And I was like, oh, gosh, I can't take money from a friend. I, I wouldn't feel comfortable. What if I lost it? And mm. he put it very frankly. He said, Jillian, I, I make 15K in an afternoon. <laughs> He's a very, very successful lawyer. He's like, if you lose it, I don't care. (laughs) I think you're going to do great things. I'd like to help you get there. And I still waited for a little bit because I still didn't feel quite comfortable taking money from friends. And then I ended up saying yes. And it was unbelievable to have that first check come in and, or well, wire transfer come in, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) And feel like I actually had fuel to try and start building something. But it was a quite a mindset difference to imagine that I could take someone else's money for this because it meant that I was really committed to building. And even though he said it didn't matter to him if I lost it, I still would feel personally terrible. But then after that, there was another big gap. And I got this sit down meeting with the chairman of Orbitz through a fellow founder who I'd gotten to know and we'd shared a hotel room at a conference. And I guess he 
saw that I had a bunch of hustle and he said, here, I'll introduce you to one of my investors, the chairman of Orbitz. I sat down for breakfast with this guy and within 15 minutes, he was like, yeah, I'm in for 25, maybe 50K. I was like, I mean, do you need me to send you something? Do you you need me to pitch more? He's like, no, I I did my research. I trust David's judgment. And uh, yeah, just send me the terms. He didn't even know what the terms were. It was crazy. (laughs) It was so crazy to me. And then I've learned subsequently that there are a lot of people like this. There are people who have just made so much money that they can take these bets that they... He has more than 100 investments like me. And so for him, it was a pretty formulaic, okay, well, this fits enough to be worth a bet. And it's funny because he's been not very involved, but he always said, you know, use and abuse my name if it can be useful to you to open doors and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I I respond to every email that he sends me, which is like six over the entire course of the company. (laughs) Um, But he's been, he, he was very impactful in being able to open doors to other investors, which was huge. And I am incredibly grateful for, for that chance that he took on me. Wow. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize that, first of all, it is incredibly difficult in the beginning, especially if it's not terribly targeted. You do take a ton of meetings and you want money and need money and to finance the company and uh, and your personal life, ultimately. And you do have to be willing to go through a lot of conversations, but it is ultimately you know, with someone that something resonates with, it sounds like you mentioned that he just trusted David's judgment as well, which was a huge uh, factor for him. And ultimately that lead and having that name got you the other meetings as well. And at this point, were you, how were you communicating the business model? Were you planning on monetizing the app as well? We were already monetizing the app, Mm -hmm. albeit at a level of, I think we were making like Eighty dollars a month or something like that at that point, but count it. Uh, we <laughs> sorry, count it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. definitely. Uh, so when people book travel, we were referring people to book travel. We got a kickback, the same as Kayak or Expedia or any of these other flight search engines do. Flights are very low margin, so you have to be very high volume for it to be effective. But there was a business model there, but. The, everyone had opinions on how we should change it and also filtering the signal from the noise in terms of who I should be listening to investor-wise was important. There were a lot of people who said, well, if you build this, then I'll invest. And I realized that that's almost never true. If they're going to invest, they're going to invest at a certain point or not. That's interesting. How do you resist that temptation? Because you have smart people telling you that something is right you know, what did you use to filter that and say no? And how did you figure out what like the true north was or who you were going to listen to? Well, with all good things, by experience, by doing the wrong thing first, by bending over backwards to build a feature that someone said that they would do and then having that investor just disappear. Did that a few times, to be honest. And at a certain point, you just realize that you know more about the product than they do. They might know more about developing a successful mobile app in general than you do. And it's very valuable to get that perspective. But I came to believe that I understood our business better and became better at just making hard decisions about what was worth and what what wasn't. But I can't say that I made the right call every time. It's impossible to A-B test this stuff. 
Learning from experience, I think, is the best way because you'll never make certain mistakes again. And sometimes you have to really experience something to know what the right move is. But um, do you recall what you ended up raising in that period of time? And, and what have you raised in total for Hitlist? We raised in total 550 in 2014 in that sort of initial round. And in total, we've raised about 1.3 now. Um, we never did a concerted round after that first one. It was always, we want to build this feature. This is the impact we expect it to have. We need 200K to get there. And it would be a question of going out and rounding up that amount of money. Again, I can't say whether this was the right or the wrong strategy. It was the strategy I was able to execute. There were times when I would have tried to raise a significant venture round. There was in 2015, I was very close to closing a $1.5 million round. And I mismanaged the process and it didn't end up happening. And it was a quite a learning experience. One of the first investors I talked to said, I love what you're doing. Let's definitely do this together. I will lead the round. But also, if we could find a co-lead, maybe we can blow it up even more. So I'll introduce you to a bunch of people, but I'll lead it regardless. And I just went with that. I didn't shop it around. I didn't work with other people. He introduced me to a lot of other people who could be our co-lead, supposedly. And meanwhile, encouraged me to hire a bunch of people. And I did. And I was spending a lot of money before we'd actually closed any of the money. Because I took him at his word that he would lead the round no matter what, but I was talking to these other investors and it seemed like maybe we we're going to raise even more money. We had some good meetings, but ultimately none of them were coming through. And after about two and a half months of stalling, I was like, well, as you know, because we'd gone through due diligence, we're like a month away from being out of money. We need to close this round now. Let's do it with just you leading. He was going to put in 500K. I had 800K lined up to follow. Maybe we'll end up closing at the full 1.5, but even 1.3 is great. And he said, actually, I've decided I don't want to lead anymore because no one else was interested in co-leading hmm. unless we knock the valuation down to half as much as what we'd agreed on. So he would have had twice as much of the company. And that's not what we agreed on in any way, shape or form. And all our metrics are pretty decent and maybe the reason we didn't find a co-lead was because it was in this weird structure where you're going to be co-leading it. Like maybe it would have, anyway, it was a very frustrating experience. And everyone always says, don't trust it till the money's in the bank. And I had been spending like the money was in the bank already. Mm. And ultimately I walked away from the deal or he did. I, I mean, either way, I mean, I decided not to take his vastly different deal and I went to the 800K I'd lined up to follow him and about 150K worth said that they would come in anyway. Hmm. So it went from being at a point where we thought we were going to have $1.3 million coming in the bank imminently to 150K, which was, I mean, better than nothing. It meant that we could survive. But at the time, the team was nine people over the course of the next few weeks laid off five of them. So it became just the sort of core four team members and also at that point, my co-founder decided to leave, uh, which I understand. He had a kid on the way and he said, I can't deal with this uncertainty. I thought I was going to be able to, you know, hire a bunch of engineers and spend 50K a month on building product and all this. And 
and you're telling me that I can't hire any engineers and I just need to code it myself. That's not what I signed up for. Right. So yeah, 2015 was a tough year. <laughs> so why do you think you were able to make it past that and how were you able to make it past? I mean, you got some money, obviously in the bank, you mm-hmm. trimmed down the team, uh, and then you just got back to work. Yeah. Uh, we focused on at that point, it just became clear that we needed to make money because it didn't seem like we were going to be able to raise venture. And, I think also I didn't fully understand the optics of what it would look like to have talked to all these people. You know, you talk to investors and you say, okay, well, I've got a lead and we're closing this. And are you going to join all this? And then all of a sudden you don't actually close that. And they they assume, you know, a lot of things are going wrong. So at that point we were three people, which is a manageable, you, you can make 150K last a long time if you are that small. I didn't pay myself anything. So it was basically server costs and salaries for the other two. And we just focused on, yeah, making more money. And it was really, really lean for a long time. Still is, frankly, I mean, compared to so many people. But what it meant is that we built something that was highly responding to the market. And we focused on building a sustainable business rather than building a unicorn. And there were points when we, I think got to a point where we did have credible investors coming in and saying, we really, really do want to invest now because mm. we had a lot of users. We had a decent amount of income. And at that point, though, it just didn't seem relevant anymore because why would you give away a big chunk of the company? And a lot of the ways that I've, I'd seen investors try and make friends companies grow uh, made them fizzle out and die. They pump too much money, you spend too quickly and burn out. Exactly. So you mentioned recently that you moved to Puerto Rico. And I'm curious then, can you just give us a little bit of an idea of where the business is now? Is it a distributed team? How many users are you at? You know, what kind of happened ultimately? We are a distributed team. So that was my main consideration was I didn't have to be in San Francisco anymore. I guess I never said... So from Istanbul, we moved to... San Francisco, briefly, I found it impossible to break in, very difficult to get anyone to take us seriously, ended up back in New York City Hmm. for three years, and then in San Francisco again for three years. At this point, the company is profitable by a hair's breadth every month, because we're always trying to figure out if we want to build more things or not. And I decided to move, I went on this little city tour earlier this year of my criteria were I wanted to be less than a five hour direct flight to New York City, which is where all my family is, somewhere warm, somewhere that felt like a dynamic and emerging technology hub. And I visited Dallas, Austin, planned to visit Miami and Atlanta. Ultimately, I just fell in love with San Juan, Puerto Rico, and moved there as of January. Where in San Juan are you? Uh, I've been staying in different parts as I sort of sample. So I was in old San Juan mm-hmm. and I have a place in Santorce when I get back tomorrow. That's very cool. Old San Juan is, is super beautiful. I went to Puerto Rico for the first time a couple of years ago because my girlfriend's half Puerto Rican and old San Juan is kind of like you're stepping into Europe. I don't know, like in the maybe 1800s or something. And it's just all the way that it was years ago. There's like bunkers there that you can go to where, you know, they used to actually defend that part. Um, so it was really interesting and it sounds really cool. You're there. I didn't know that it was an emerging tech hub though. Is that true? Absolutely. So one of the 
main things that I think a lot of people in the tech community associate Puerto Rico with is crypto, uh, is blockchain technology, mm. because there are some tax incentives that make it indisputably the best place to be if you are a crypto investor. And so basically, if you enact a certain tax act, you pay no capital gains tax. So if you happen to own a lot of Bitcoin or something, that's very advantageous. So a lot of people in that community move down there. And there's a high overlap with that and a lot of other emerging tech. And so uh, that's one part of the community. There's also an accelerator called Parallel 18, which is being run by the same person who ran Startup Chile, which was, uh, I think, widely regarded to be a pretty successful tech uh, accelerator out of Chile. So it's a similar model in Puerto Rico where they attract entrepreneurs from all over the world with government grants, not taking equity, just grants to domicile in Puerto Rico. And so they've attracted, had a bunch of great companies come through there as well. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, though, as we kind of wrap up the interview, I do want to try to understand, you know, after you shifted your mind frame and started focusing on creating a sustainable business how did your work change? In other words, the day-to-day, what did you start doing more of and what was your focus then? Sales. Yeah. I hate sales. <laughs> what uh, kind of sales? Sales. So we, we do have a, a large dynamic user base of people who love to travel. There are a lot of companies who would like to target those types of people. And so with our core product, we would never recommend a flight or a hotel that is more expensive than it needs to be. But, you know, there are other things around any, everything from language classes to travel, to suitcases, to ancillary services around travel that people want to advertise. So um, we put ads in the newsletter and some very select things within the app if we can figure out a creative way to do it. But we always prioritize the customer experience. We could make a lot more money by shoehorning a bunch more ads in, but finding a fine balance between not alienating our user base. We think our users are pretty awesome and we want to make sure that they think the product is awesome too, but also capitalizing on the fact that we've built a great audience and, and there are people who want to reach it. I'm curious, you mentioned in the beginning, you started doing sales and you hate sales. So fundamentally your life changed really because what you were doing now on a daily basis, you didn't really want to do. <laughs> How did you get past that? Because it sounds like you know, obviously you're very resourceful. You figured out how to fundraise. You figured out how to run product. You figured out how to work with engineer. You figured out how to do marketing and all these other things, probably because you're innately curious, maybe because of your journalistic experience. I don't know. And your background. But what about this? You didn't really want to do it. How'd you force yourself to do it? It turns out that there are people who actually love sales and who are great at sales. So I focused on finding those people. And I also found things about the process to enjoy and to get better at. I, I enjoy a challenge. So even though I think the reason I hate sales is because I don't think I'm very good at it. Hmm. And so it frustrates me that I feel like I have a low hit rate, a low success rate for how much time and effort I put into it. But then again, you just need to reframe that as, okay, that's something I, I need to improve and get better at. So I enjoy a challenge as well. And you did it yourself first to learn exactly the kind of people you need to hire who can do a better job than you and understand the process, which is so important. That's something that we tell entrepreneurs all the time. You can hire something out, but you can't do it until you intimately understand what that thing is by trying it yourself. Would you agree with that? Actually, no. No? <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, our first salesperson was someone who I'd hired as a marketing 
part-time person. And she was just absolutely incredible at, and she's the one who devised our entire B2B sales strategy. Mm -hmm. And she made our first few sales and she was great. And when she had first come to me for a job, she said, I want to work for you for a little bit and then I want to start my own company. And sure enough, after two years, she said, okay, I'm going to go start my own company now. And I knew I couldn't try and retain her and I knew she was going to go off and do that. But it was a big loss because she was great at it. Mm. But she wrote the playbook for us and I went on to try and execute on it. And I did to a degree. She was better at it than I was. Hmm. And then I've always been trying to find someone as great as her (laughs) since then. And we've had a a few good people at different times, but it's not my strength. Mm -hmm. I think my strength is in recruiting an initial team and building technical product and understanding the needs of a market and maybe some high level marketing, but it's not the thing that I'm best at. And to the extent that I can, I, I try to bring in people that are better than me at the things that I'm not. And over the years, as you guys grew your user base, were there moments where you just had massive spikes or was it kind of a little bit more linear? We did have massive spikes, but I wouldn't say they were necessarily because of our technical product decisions, but because of various marketing things. So whether it was a piece of press or an app store feature. So when Apple decides to feature you, it can be totally amazing. Now they've changed the format of the app store a little bit, when we got our first big Apple feature, it was 104,000 downloads in six days. Wow. Did that happen? Just They just chose you or was there any kind of process? They chose us. Apple loves to be very mysterious about this. So <laughs> they'll, what they'll do is they'll request artwork, which means that they might feature you, but they don't say when they might feature you. They never confirm if they're going to. It's just something you... Uh, at the time, they would refresh the App Store every Thursday, but at a, a, an indeterminate time in the afternoon California time. So you just sort of sit there refreshing the app store. <laughs> if you press it 10 times, it automatically refreshes. Like, I remember doing that for a little bit. And now it's just, they have the app of a day feature. And they also have various sub features from time to time. And I mean, between there are also different app stores in different countries and regions. So Sometimes I just get uh, someone tweeting at me and saying, congratulations on the App Store feature. And I'm like, that's why we got an extra 3,000 downloads today. <laughs> and you have an Android app now too? We do. It's Because nice. I'm an Android guy. <laughs> I will admit our Android app has some, it has some technical flaws. Okay. It's not as great as our iPhone app. I think if you look at the reviews, our iPhone app has around 11,000 five-star reviews. And our Android app, I think, is somewhere in the 3.5-star average. Mm -hmm. And part of that has been a bit of a chicken and egg thing. Uh, We've never had as many Android users. They've tended to not actually engage with the app very much. And we've underinvested in the product itself. It's there. It does work. There are definitely some bugs. So then what's next, would you say, for Hitlist? And what is your focus these days as the team now? It's it's distributed now, right? It wasn't always distributed. Uh, It's more or less always been distributed to a degree. There have been times when we've had two or three people in the same place. Mm -hmm. But the core team members have always been when I say my co-founder now our CTO and we've always been 
in different places. We get together periodically. Mm. What's next for Hitlist? We started developing last year a premium product, which is a subscription upsell. So um, instead of us monetizing off of advertising or off of commissions on flights booked, we're actually monetizing directly from users, which I think is great in mm. the sense it's the most pure. They're paying us for a product they find useful which is great. And we've had actually a pretty good reception for that and a good subscribe rate. Well, and- what I love about this story, and you know, we, we covered a lot of bases here today, but over the last six years or so, this business has started off as something that you were just good at and honestly a value providing to your friends to something that through trial and error, you were able to learn how to scale beyond just your friend group. And you got into so many new uh, domains that you hadn't experienced before, fundraising, sales, marketing, and you kind of just figured things out, made some mistakes along the way, but were able to persevere and survive, which I think is so important. And we talked a lot about fundraising today, which I didn't really expect us to do, but I think it's important because a lot of founders do think that you know, fundraising, that's how I'm going to grow my business. That's that's how everybody does it. I'm used to reading it on TechCrunch, whatever it is. And so it's a be-all, end-all. But as you saw in your experience, it's really the ability to figure it out when you have your back against the wall. For you, you figured out a way to monetize the user base so that you can survive and see another day without necessarily giving up equity. And for a lot of businesses, that's the right thing. We see a lot of interesting things for, for you in the future and in, in HitList. Uh, I think that you know if you do end up, let's say, selling it or just growing it and running it for the rest of your life, those are also great options. But now you will have retained more equity and you have more control over your destiny. And uh, I think that's a pretty cool thing. Yeah, I mean, we mentor and advise a lot of entrepreneurs, and I'm constantly hearing from them, you know, should I do this? Should I do that? Uh, Or, okay, well, yes, but it sounds like I have to do this. And sometimes the pain that I hear from them is is really there. And look, entrepreneurship is is a difficult thing. Don't get me wrong. Uh, As you witness yourself, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of times where you have to just figure things out. You have to be resourceful. But ultimately, you get to decide what kind of business you want to build. And if you're in a position where you hate your life, you don't have to do this. You don't have to be an entrepreneur. You certainly don't have to run this business. You know, in the beginning for you guys, when Hitlist started, and it wasn't called Hitlist, uh, but when the, the idea to start a business started, uh, you were working on something that didn't work. You were naturally pulled into something that was more valuable. And then you ended up growing the user base and doing some fundraising. And then even through that process, you realize, well, maybe we don't have to fundraise. Maybe it's better to build a sustainable business that is actually generating revenue. And then you change your day-to-day and you actually focused on that. And even now, as you create your premium product, you want to bring value directly to your users. And there's no better way to do that than having them say, we'll give you money in exchange for what you're providing for us. And so, again, it sounds like you're continuing to take the company into the direction that you want to take it create the business that you want to create. And I think that's incredibly important for any entrepreneur that's listening not to gloss over. There are going to be difficult times. It is a beautiful learning experience and you're going to become better for it no matter what. Even if your business fails, the skills that you develop as an entrepreneur through this process, now you can, if you needed a job, you can do sales. If you need a job, you can be a product manager. You can manage engineers. You know, you don't have to go back to journalism if you don't want to. You acquired all these different skills. You could probably work for a VC for sure. You're creating all these skills that make you more well-rounded, that make you more defensible as well. And uh, that's what you should focus on as an entrepreneur.
Julian, thank you so much for coming on the show. We love your story, and we're looking forward to following it and also having you back when you have something else you want to announce. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to meet you guys.